welcome to episode number 224 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and I am an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. We have such an interesting show today. We are going to be talking about changes in higher education and in corporate learning. And our guest is Rick Levin, who is the CEO of Coursera. And Rick was the president of Yale. He was the longest standing president of Yale University. Then he retired and began this, can we say, a second career, Rick? Welcome Absolutely. to uh, CXO yeah. Talk. Yeah, it was a, a complete change. So, so you were retired from Yale and you're at home and doing the things you do and, and you decided to become CEO of Coursera. How did, how did that happen? Uh, well, I was actually on, on, on sabbatical away from New Haven, came out, my wife and I came out to Stanford to take some time off after 20 years of service as president. And a um, couple of things. One, one is I got um, approached by someone who was a senior advisor at Kleiner Perkins, one of the investors in Coursera. And he uh, said, you know, you, you've got spare time, Rick. You ought to come over and help us at Coursera. And I was a big fan of Coursera. Yale was a partner, and, and I, we'd done online learning uh, experiments at Yale in the past. So I said, sure. And I kind of got in discussions with Daphne Kohler and Andrew Ung, the co-founders, um, uh, about serving as a kind of consultant for, for, uh, for them right after the first of the year in 2014. But it was no, no sooner had I done that that, John Doerr, the famous leader of Kleiner Perkins, was all over me to say, no, no, what you really should do is not be senior advisor, but you come, come be the CEO and, and, and uh, help build the company. And uh, it was hugely tempting and, uh, because it's such an amazing company with such, a, such an important social mission. Um, we're really doing great work. So tell us about Coursera. It's an amazing company with a great social mission. So, so tell us what is Coursera and underlying the activities of the company, what is that mission? Okay. Well, the mission is easy. The mission is to, is to uh, you know, transform the lives of people by giving them access to the world's best education. So we, we are a platform. Uh, that offers courses from 150 of the world's best universities. We're distributed worldwide. We, we have, you know, using advanced technology to enhance the learning experience. Uh, and we have reached over, since inception in 2012, have reached over 25 million learners worldwide, three quarters of them outside the United States. Um, and, you know, we offer uh, courses across the whole spectrum of human knowledge, but what we found in terms of, you know, shaping a business model is um, people are happy to watch the videos for free in all of these courses, but the, it's only in sort of career relevant fields that they're willing to pay for credentials. So the model is the courses are there. Anybody can watch the videos, but if you want to get tested and you want to get a certificate uh, that you've completed the course, you pay a very modest price. You know, these are like, we're on subscriptions for some of them now at $49 a month. Others are priced at $79 a course. It's very reasonable. Um, and this is drawing people from all over. So that, that was the basic start. Of the, and we've since branched out to do some other things. But the, the core business is, you know, built on free, massive, open online courses that are, that are open to anyone. And then people who want to pay for certification are starting to use these credentials, you know, as essentially badges in the workplace. 
and you partner with educational institutions. So, so well-known professors are putting their courses online with Coursera. That's right. We, we have 150 university partners. They include some of the top universities uh, in the United States, such as Yale and Stanford and University of Pennsylvania and University of Michigan um, uh, and, and many, many others. And then top universities all around the world, University of London and, and uh, the, the, the five or six of the Grande Coles in France and top universities throughout Asia, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, and so forth. So we, we have uh, great content. And because we partner with the universities rather than go try to hire freelance professors, we, we essentially get quality assurance because universities don't want to put second-rate teaching up, on, up, on, up for global uh, learners to sort of experience. So they really give us their best faculty. The courses have extremely high um, you know, um, ratings from, our, from the learners. Uh, average courses of 4.6 on a five-point scale. So we're, you know, we're really proud of the product. It's really great. It's really great content. Rick, why, what is the incentive for the universities and for the professors to partner with you? Because if we think about it from an economic standpoint, you're, you're charging, you know, under a hundred dollars for a course. Yeah. Well, the incentive is we split the revenue with, with our partners. Um, And, and uh, the, the number, you know, the scale is such that the revenue becomes meaningful. I mean, we're, we're growing quite rapidly. We have doubled revenue year on year the last couple of years. And, um, and, you know, it's beginning to be the case that there are, you know, some of our university partners are making, at this point, meaningful revenue. And we think there's a huge growth ahead of us. So, so, so this is a, so there's a, a scale. So this is about scale. That's one very important aspect of this. That's super important. Uh, the, the, the I think you know obviously at those low at those low prices that would it wouldn't be meaningful if we were talking about you know 100 students in a class. So um, so that so scale is super important. And 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 I should say that the university's incentives are not strictly financial, and neither are ours. That is, the if you're a professor in a great university, you know m- more or less you know there with the dual mission of advancing knowledge through your research and disseminating it through your teaching. But, you know, if you think about it, historically universities are in a way squandering these talented people and the fruits of their knowledge by wasting them on only 15 people in a seminar when they could be teaching, you know, 15,000 online. And so we, we see it as a way of actually helping universities to expand their mission beyond their own campus boundaries to educate great numbers of people, which is completely consistent with what they were set up to do, which is disseminate knowledge. Is there a disruptive aspect to this in the way that uh, Amazon has changed retailing or Uber has changed the transportation business? So is there a disruptive dimension to this as well? Well, there there are disruptive dimensions, but and let me try to characterize it. Uh, but first of all, the, the difference between us uh, and, and Uber is, of course, um, <laughs> we're hiring existing taxi drivers to teach the courses, not, 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 not a new labor force. So we're, we're, we're using universities and working with universities to, re- to reach learners. So we're, they're our partners, not our competitors. Um, so we're not, in that sense, not really disrupting higher education, at least not now. Now, what the, the disruptive impact we're having actually is on the labor market because 
because these credentials are now being taken seriously by employers as certifications that people have competencies. You know, if you look at LinkedIn, you'll just see tons of people that post their Coursera certificates uh, in their LinkedIn profile. And, and that, so it's now becoming a signal to employers. It's, it, it, it will, it, that will continue to grow as more employers start to hire to these credentials. And we're seeing this. We're seeing a number of big, particularly we're in Silicon Valley, employers saying, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to look only at where the person went to university, but also where, uh, at what further education they've availed themselves as, of in their working careers. So we, um, in that sense, we're creating a new currency in the labor market, and it's highly valued. So this ends up this type of disruption in the labor market must have ultimately upstream effects in terms of the type of activities, experiences, courses that traditional universities offer. Right. So there's this unbundling. Clay Shirky talks about the unbundling yep. of the experience. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, we learned in our first first couple of years, we just took whatever content the universities uh, wanted to provide us. So we built a broad catalog of courses across the spectrum of liberal arts and sciences and business and technology and so forth. What we discovered is that the, the, the propensity to pay for content was really concentrated in business courses, in computer science related courses, and data science, which is a big emerging field that, on which there's a tremendous labor shortage. And so, um, so we saw that, and then we started actually soliciting content in these areas from our university partners. So now it's a mix. A, you know, a good fraction of the new content we introduce is actually stuff that we went to the universities and put out an RFP and asked them to supply to us um, because we knew there was a market demand for it. One of the interesting aspects of this is how what were the conditions that needed to be in place for Coursera to be founded, right? There needed to be technology, economic conditions. So what enabled Coursera to come alive? It, it's a great question, and it, lot, and it really does have a lot to do with technology, technology's development. Um, back at Yale in the year 2000, uh, I, I helped to form a joint venture between Stanford, Yale, and Oxford, not by coincidence, my three alma maters, and, and we uh, pulled up to create online courses. It was, you know, new, first, first wave of the internet revolution, and it, it was just too early. The, you know, the video streaming was, was, was really jerky and not, and not, uh, not effective, and so, um, you know, we just didn't have enough bandwidth and most devices didn't have enough bandwidth. You couldn't have, I mean, we didn't have mobile phones that played the courses in those days. So technology wasn't really there to make it hugely scalable and effective. Um, then there was a second wave in the mid, uh, middle of the first decade in the century when MIT and Berkeley and Yale and a number of other schools just started putting lecture courses online by filming what happened in the actual classroom. And that, that got, that got a lot of viewers, but, uh, that open educational resource movement got, got a lot of audience, but it wasn't really a, a very edifying educational experience uh, uh, because it didn't have the interactivity. And so come, you know, fast forward to 2012 and really you have a sort of simultaneous discovery in, you know, around Coursera at, 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 uh, at MIT and Harvard where they founded edX at about the same time as Coursera and in Britain where the open university 
founded FutureLearn just a little while thereafter. All of these realizing now the bandwidth is there, now the capabilities are there, now we can actually have interactivity real time. We can, pro you know, we have a server capacity to host all this. You know, it's a huge amount of data, you know, you know, 16, 20 hours of video content and all kinds of interactive quizzes and stuff. It's actually, you know, pretty substantial um, requirements from a, from a storage and computational point of view. But that was, you know, by 2012, it was all there. And, and it's not surprising that sort of several of these companies sprung up right at the same time. How do you how do you differentiate? How do you when you look at the market for this type of learning and what do you what do you call this type of learning? I mean, we, we all know the term MOOCs, but what do you call it? And when you look at the market, how are the how are the different companies differentiated and what's unique about yeah. Coursera? Okay, well, there are a bunch of questions there. Let me try to <laughs> disentangle them. Uh, uh, first of all, we call this learning, not a type of learning. I, that is to say, we think it. We think it's for many, many types of subjects. Uh, online learning is is equivalent to, or even superior to, in classroom learning. So let me let me just unpack that for a minute. Um, the 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 um, you know we we don't yet have the capacity online to do exactly what's done in like a live seminar with 12 or 15 people, which is intense back and forth with a live professor asking questions using Socratic methods, an argument, take feedback and criticism from their, from their peers and so forth. But that's an amazingly powerful way of teaching and develops a kind of capacity for critical thinking and argumentation and, and, you know, rational discourse that, I think the online technology is yet to deliver on. On the other hand, if you talk about mastering content, if you want to learn to code in Python, or if you want um, to master some of the new techniques of machine learning that are, that are fueling the data analytics operations in so many companies and governments around the world, um, content mastery, we do extremely well compared to live teaching. I mean, how many people, have you ever sat in a math course and been confused in the first five minutes, and therefore, you know, we're at sea for the remaining 45 minutes of the lecture. I've certainly had that experience, and and you don't have to have that experience online because we have six-minute segments. You take a quiz at the end. If you're stuck and you don't get it, go back and watch it over. Uh, you might even get guided as we're developing some of the pedagogy of if you're really having trouble with this, why don't you try so-and-so's course, which is a little easier and it will help get you prepared for this course. So, so we have, you know, th th there's the rewind button, there's the frequent quizzes. Um, and actually there's also the opportunity to adjust the speed of the lecturer's voice to anywhere between 50% and two X, the normal rate of speech. And believe me, that's actually pretty cool too, because when you really get something, it's easy for you, you know, speed it up. And when it's hard, slow it down. Um, so there's a lot of ways in which the learning is, uh, is better. And there've been a lot of studies that have shown that for content mastery, online learning is the equivalent or even better than classroom learning. And actually the best of both worlds is when you blend them is when you do, do, you know, watch videos offline, take quizzes, and then come into class and have a discussion that tends to really, that that's really the optimal experience. So, that was the first part of your question. What about learning? Um, and then you were asking who are the competitors, which, which um, you know, edX, I mentioned, they're, they're very similar to Coursera in that they work with university partners. They, um, they, just as we have some top-notch institutions, they have headline institutions of Harvard and, and, uh, and MIT that are the co-founders. 
And, um, uh, and you know, actually, you know, the, 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 the main thing that differentiates us from them is our audience is about two and a half times bigger. We have 25 million registered learners. They have about 10. We have a, we have a broader course catalog, about 2,000 courses. They have about 1,000. Um, but it's very, I mean, it's great stuff. They have great material, just like we do, because right? they're also working with top universities. We have some some interesting questions from Twitter, and I'm just going to take them in order. So okay. Terry Griffith, Griffith asks, uh, when you were talking earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, about uh, gaining quality by partnering with universities, high quality courses, material, she makes the comment that she's looking for employers to also play a larger role, and she's an academic. And I right. know that you are working with employers. And so what about the role yeah, of employers yeah. in education and learning? Okay, so there's two dimensions to that that are worth talking about. One is um, uh, industry-provided content to supplement our university-provided content. So, in, so companies actually making courses. Uh, and we've started to, to work with, with a, a number of companies to do courses that effectively use proprietary technologies. So the material is essentially not competitive with what our universities do. So for example, you can now take courses on, on uh, Coursera offered by Google to become a Google Cloud developer, or courses from IBM that, um, that uh, introduce you to the, the, the Watson uh, Internet of Things technologies. Um, we also have some Intel courses coming out of the platform and PwC um, uh, is is doing some is doing some work on sort of visual presentation of data and you know how to, how to give a great PowerPoint talk <laughs> very practical so th so we are complementing university um, uh, university teaching with uh, more practical applied um, uh, courses from from universities I think that will grow from uh, companies that, that will grow but even the more exciting development to me is you know about a year and 15 months ago or so, we, we looked at our data and we realized, you know, we've got 50,000 uh, course registrations from people with an Amazon.com email address and 45,000 from IBM and 30,000 from Cisco. And, and we realized people are, are using these courses in the work, you know, in the workplace in connection with their work. And so we, we started early last year going to companies, testing the idea, how about buying packages of these courses to help so, help solve your problems um, uh, in, uh, in training your labor force. And I have to say, this has hit just an enormous resonant chord with chief learning officers in major companies. They see that, we're, that what we can do is fill a gap that they just can't do. I mean, they do live instruction on lots of things like company policies and, and you know, compliance and so forth like that. They use purchased videos for some of the same work, but they're like short form videos. And many companies use a, a lynda.com or a Skillsoft or both, which are large catalogs of short form videos, you know, that, that teach you a, a, you know, a single piece of, you know, skill, how to pivot an Excel spreadsheet or something like that. Um, they, in our courses, which are essentially four weeks long, 16, 12 to 16 hours of, of video content. Um, the, 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 and, they, they saw an opportunity to really start to upgrade the skills of their workers. Um, and we've, we've now got an, an enterprise business going where we're um, selling these university courses into companies and they're really finding it 
very valuable. A couple of use cases. One is very specific training. You know, like at Bank of New York Mellon, they're tr- they're onboarding all their new software engineers with our our specialization from the University of, from Hong Kong University of Science Technology in full stack web development. So everybody has a common language. Um, they uh, that's one example. Um, the other the other use case at the extreme is I just want to be a good employer. And I want my millennials to have access to learning and professional development. So I'll give them a, you know, a wide range of options of courses to take and, and encourage them to do it. Uh, and, and both cases are at work. So are you in, in this case, are you replacing the in-house university that might be focused either for employees or very often companies, say technology companies, provide education and training for their customers on their particular products? Yeah. Well, again, you know, is it disruption or absorption? I mean, uh, will the in-house universities now use our content in favor of some of their own, uh, you know, locally created content or in part or together with it? That That is, I think that's the most common use case that companies that have these internal universities, they're going to continue to do things with their own live staff. But I do think they will be substituting more and more online courses for, for, uh, for, uh, for live courses. It's very economically effective for them. And, uh, and, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Now it's also true that, um, there's still, there's still a, a case for, you know, high level in-person training, um, that many companies use, they, they, you know, business school professors come in and, and give customized content to top levels in an organization. We think that's highly complementary with what we're doing because we're, you know, our, our business school partners can basically take the top of the pyramid and we take the base of the pyramid as as uh, target audiences, and I, I think that's going to work well. I have the uh, strong sense as you're talking that your your focus is on this partnership and finding ways where you can be complementary to whether it's corporations or universities as opposed to trying to displace what they're doing. Yeah, that's very good. I I agree with that. I I think that is what we're doing. We have some uh, additional questions, and we have one from Shelly Lucas on Twitter. And Shelly is asking, how is artificial intelligence or machine learning affecting human learning? So, you know, we... we, um, uh, in many ways, actually. I mean, we're, we're, we're using um, machine learning algorithms for a whole variety of purposes at Coursera. One, of course, is to drive the recommendation engine and matching learners to the right content for them. And I think I mentioned before, we, 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 um, we both do that um, through the standard kind of Think, you know, recommendations like Amazon would deliver. We see from what you've done on our website, you know, that you're probably interested or you might be interested in the following courses. That's a sort of level one. But level two is we're really developing now a whole, um, a whole content mapping of our courses at, in a very fine and granular way using machine learning to basically map out, you know, what videos contain what topics and what content in a way that we can then direct learners more specifically to fulfill the needs, the needs and learning objectives that they have. So guiding people to the right content is a big use case for machine learning. Giving people the right assessments and, and helping them um, get the right kind of feedback 
is another thing we're using machine learning for. And some of that is not yet rolled out, but we're doing some really exciting work actually on optimizing assessments for you so that, so that you're not discouraged and can continue to make progress in a course. So there's, there's a uh, technology component. Is it, is it fair to, is the technology piece as important and as large as the educational content piece? How do you think about those two? It's a good question. They really obviously go together and we, we can enhance the quality of the content with powerful technology. I do think that if you ask why has Coursera resonated so much and why have we grown so rapidly, you'd have to say that, that the power of our university brands is, you know, super important for that. I mean, so the content, it's the perception of the, and, and the reality of the quality of the content, I think probably comes first at this point, but who knows where the technology will take us. I mean, it's changing every day and, and there could be some great breakthroughs. And on this topic of technology, we have another interesting question from Arsalan Khan, and I'm, I'm glad that he asked this because I was I was curious about this as well. Uh -huh. What kind of analytics and tracking uh, do you do of the courses, of the videos, of the assessments? And he's also wondering, do you share these results with your partners so that they can improve their content creation? Super great question, and it's exactly what we're doing. So um, uh, with respect to universities, yes, we give them tracking capability. They're, they're giving the grades to the learners. Now, granted, a lot of the grades are the result of machine grading algorithms. It's not, there's not that much uh, human intervention in most of our open, large-scale classes. Um, so, um, but, but the... Um, but, but, the, but the professors have definitely used the data to improve their courses. So I'll give you an example. And it's uh, just uh, drawing personal experience. I mean, I, I taught microeconomics at Yale for many years. And it's a micro, I taught at the sort of level where you first start to use calculus. It's, so it's pretty hard for a lot of students to make the leap and actually, um, and actually do, this, do this subject. And sometimes I would ask an, a midterm exam question and, you know, almost everybody would flub it. And the question is, the question then becomes, well, is that because the question was poorly written or is that because people, I wasn't getting across and people really didn't understand what's happening in the lectures. If I wanted to change that in a residential setting of a campus, I got to wait till next year to pick one of those two hypotheses and try it out and then wait and then to see what the results are. So it might take me two or three years to iterate to what's the best treatment of this subject. Um, and their set of treatments and exam questions. On Coursera, you can do that within a matter of weeks. You can change your quiz question, see if it improves performance. And if that doesn't work, you can go in and re-record a six-minute video or four six-minute videos to cover the block of material and then test that and see, how, see if that improves results. So the feedback from, from, uh, from the learner data is incredibly important, and it really, it really does improve pedagogy. This has to be has to be one of the most fascinating and incredible parts of the entire online course experience because it means that you're able to iterate in terms of that content, ensuring quality content and ensuring that the content matches the needs of learners by yep. getting direct feedback from learners as a group exactly. very quickly. Exactly. It's it's great. And by the way, um, 
the, that tracking capability that we're giving, that we give to our university content creators, we're also giving to our enterprise customers so that they can see how their employees are doing and, and you know, make appropriate interventions where they need to. So at Coursera, what does innovation actually mean? So when you talk about innovation at Coursera, what form does that take? <laughs> I could step out of the studio right now and right on this floor at our offices in Mountain View, you know, we've got 75 engineers that are, who are super bright, competitive with the very best technology firms, um, just working on learning experience, on assessments, on, on, uh, on, on uh, how to sequence material to make it better um, uh, and and uh, in terms of our uh, in terms of some of the offerings we're doing now I'll come to this later but we are offering degree programs now on Coursera from our university partners and there we're that's a big area of innovation right now because we're moving into the area of live synchronous interaction as well as the asynchronous massive uh, uh, interactivity that we have now so there's a lot of innovation going on. So, so again, you must have uh, technologists working closely with content developers, or, or how? Do, again, how does that work? How does that interplay? Yeah. Take well, place? content, the actual, you know, the, the professors and the instructional designers and so forth are largely in the universities, but we do give a lot of support. So, we, obviously, we create the technology platform, which gives them the universities the tools and gives them things they can, you know things they can do in their courses um, that, 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 that maybe before technology they couldn't. I'll come back to that. Um, uh, but, uh, but we also have a, t- a teaching and learning team who are pedagogy experts, and they are sort of help to guarantee, you know, basically do the quality assurance on the courses. So all of the courses that we have to go into our larger volume products and l- larger revenue products, which are, bundles of courses that we call specializations, so like sequences. Um, all of those courses are beta tested um, before we release them. We, we have a population of uh, two or 3,000 learners who have agreed to be, you know, beta testers. And so we get a lot of feedback. So, so we actually are helping, you know, to make sure that the, that the concepts are clear and the courses are well-structured. Um, so we do all that. We have both technology and sort of human intervention on the on the teaching quality side. It sounds like uh, one of the key themes is uh, in, you having interaction and providing feedback both to your higher education partners as well as your corporate learning partners. Right. Right. Based based on that data. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, you know, I, I should mention one other sort of use case for our, for our material that is growing also rapidly, which is, you know, this, this gap in, in, in that exists today that people call the skills gap, which I, I would define as there's a lot of unemployed and underemployed people who are looking for jobs on the one hand and on the other, there are a lot of high skilled jobs that are going begging and, and and remain vacant because we can't find enough qualified people. And, and, one way to solve that, of course, is to create gives to give better skills to the people who need them, and 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 who then could get the better paying jobs and the better and the high quality jobs. And a lot of those jobs are in computer fields and also in um, data fields in, in this era of machine learning and big data, um, where we have you know superb curriculum. So one of the things we're doing now is we're we're working with governments uh, um, 
on, on workforce development programs. I mean, one small pilot in the state of Maine, for example, with unemployed and underemployed workers there, um, where where they're taking our our, our technology oriented courses um, in order to get entry level jobs in that sector, um, and they're even getting live facilitation of, of their learning in collaboration with the University of New England. Um, and then we've got larger scale programs in a number of countries around the world, and a very large program about to launch in Pakistan that will be tens of thousands of, of uh, people needing training. Uh, and we, we're, we have similar programs, smaller scale in Egypt, Malaysia, Mongolia, um, uh, Kazakhstan, and Singapore. So, they're, they're, you know, that's a huge need. And you, know, you think about, you know, who the Trump voter is and what they and what many of them need is they need a new opportunity. You know, the, 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 the people in our society with who've not had, you know, had constant or declining real income for the last 30 years, you know, a lot of those people could pick up new skills by, through online technology and, and, and help to help them get better jobs. Well, certainly this issue of skills training in our global economy right. is, is so important. And <clears throat> so please share your thoughts on the economic aspects of this, the social cultural aspects of this and what can be done? What are the, what are the policy implications here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th I think these, you know, in, in our country, we don't really have federally administered training programs at any scale, but there are a lot of state workforce development programs, um, you know, that could be, I think, greatly enhanced by the use of, of online materials, which are so scalable and so low cost relative to, you know, making everything be live instruction. So uh, I do see a big scope for that. I also, a, I also see scope for government policy at the federal level. We have on the books in the U.S. tax code a, life, a lifetime learning tax credit that allows you to, for vocational training, you know, in adulthood, after, after your eligibility for the higher education opportunity tax credit is used up, you can use the lifelong tax credit, lifetime tax credit However, because it's a tax credit and it's not refundable, 45% of U.S. households at the bottom of the income distribution can't use it. It seems really weird since it's designed to upgrade people's skills. And, and then if your income exceeds $65,000, you also can't use it. So we're, we've, got a, we've got a tax provision that's actually hitting maybe 10 to 15% of the population which seems a little nuts. And so uh, I think a very important reform in the upcoming tax, uh, tax reform would be to just make this a refundable credit and, and open it up to many more people. And that would allow people on their own to, to get access to very high quality, you know, uh, online materials as well as live, as well as go take a course in their community college um, live. Um, Singapore has a program just like this where they, where they have, um, uh, people get a $500 credit and they can use it to take a live course at an educational institution or to take an online course that's certified and accredited by the government. We've put over 600 of our courses through that accreditation process and we're actually the largest, um, the, the largest, you know, beneficiary of that program in Singapore, more, more offering more courses and, you know, having more people involved than any other provider. So this kind of tax, rather than a tax credit, as you're describing, what what would you call it? What would you a rebate? No, I say no. 
Well, no, economic terms are just, what if you had, you got a tax credit, it was a refundable credit, which meant if you didn't pay taxes, you still, you got the money back. It's similar to, uh, you know, similar to the earned income tax credit. And this would obviously be beneficial to folks who are in need of skills training. We hear all about globalization. Uh, so your work then with governments, to, do you touch on this both in the United States and in foreign countries as you're, as you're working with various governments? Or what is, what is your, your relationship and how do you see those relationships? Um, we've, we're typically working, uh, the, we have not been working at the policy level. I'm, I'm just suggesting this lifetime earning tax credit is, as an economist, noting that this <laughs> is something we should be fixing. But uh, the relationships we have are, you know, we have a, we have a, we have a team, that, you know, business development team that's out talking to governments to, to sort of elicit their interest in these kinds of use of our courses for, um, you know, for, for workforce training. And uh, as I said, it's resonating. We got about a half a dozen countries in the developing world who are now uh, engaged. And, and there's a lot of other great use cases. We have a small program, but one with a potential to scale, which is uh, here in this country with the Institute Institute for uh, Veterans and Military Families. And the idea here is to give our courses to people in the last six months of their military service to help them prepare to transition into the civilian labor force. And so we're teaching both computer skills and actually hotel and restaurant management to to veterans um, involved in this program. Well, so you, not veterans, soon to become veterans. Yeah. So, yeah. so the breadth of what you're teaching now and your plans for the future are, are really quite quite broad, quite wide. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, the opportunity here for society, you know, not not just for us, but, but I mean, we're, we're the leading edge. But it, I mean, there's enormous opportunity to use technology. To, to you know help people improve their lives and and improve their economic opportunities so um, I, I do think that you know we'll see a proliferation of these policies uh, of these uh, of this kind of use over over time to great advantage we have another question from Twitter which is what are the most popular courses that Coursera offers good question. So that's interesting. If you do, if you do it by um, just enrollments, it's a mix of career-related courses um, and and more uh, and courses that are more based on sort of just practical interest and curiosity. So the the from the skills development side, the most popular courses are are were our first course, machine learning, taught by Andrew Ong, one of our co-founders. Um, uh, which he's updated some and is about to actually do some more new new material, but that's hugely popular. It, it really is probably the best foundation you can get in this field of machine learning available anywhere. I mean, he's a superstar teacher at Stanford, and it's really a great course. Um, so that's 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 one of the top uh, four or five. Um, introduction to I think well, it's Python for everyone. Python programming course taught by. Um, a very popular computer science professor, Dr. Chuck, at the University of, of uh, Illinois, uh, Michigan, I'm sorry, University of Michigan, is extremely popular. Um, uh, we, we have, um, on, the, uh, on the other side, um, a couple of courses that had, have had tremendous popularity. There's one called Learning How to Learn by a woman named Barb Oakley, um, 
uh, offered by from through the University of California at San Diego. And this is a neuroscience course that that talks about how the brain works, and and yet uh, you know uses draws from it very practical lessons about how to study effectively. So it's very cool. She, she has this metaphor about active and passive ways that the brain works and how you have to combine them. And so that leads to tips like never study in t- never study for more than twenty five minutes without taking a break. Um, and there's a whole lot of, of you know scientific evidence to back this up. It, very entertaining course. Um, the, 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 those three are probably the top three courses in terms of popularity. And we have another uh, related question coming from Twitter. We have just about five minutes left, sure. and th- this is from Paol. Hope I'm pronouncing his his name correctly. Uh, <laughs> Paola Guevara. And uh, Paola asks, what is most inspiring to you about online education? Oh, that's easy. Every every meeting of our company, we have all hands meetings, typically once every other week. And our, at the end of the meeting, someone in our company will get up and present the story of one of our learners. And they'll often do it just by reading email exchange. Sometimes they'll connect with, by Skype with those learners and create a video for the company to see. But the stories are just amazing. I mean, it, people that have completely transformed their lives because of their access to this material. I mean, we had a story uh, recently from a, 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 a Syrian refugee in a camp in Turkey about how this has just opened up a whole new world to him. We've had, we've had a family of, dysle- of a dyslexic young man tell us about how this child didn't, couldn't relate in a live classroom. You know, he was terrified and didn't, he couldn't function. And that all of a sudden he's just taken off and blossomed as a, as a human being. And as he's completed like 25 of our courses and it's, it's, changed, it's changed his life and the family's life. Um, you know, people getting amazing economic opportunities um, from stories as mundane as I graduated from British University as a, as a, you know, English major. And of course, there were no jobs for me, but I got out. And so I took Coursera courses on, on data science. And now I've got a great high paying job as a data analyst. So, so the, 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 that the mundane one, the, the more radical one is I'm a battered woman. I escaped a brutal marriage in, in Bangladesh and took Wharton business courses on Coursera in order to prepare myself to start a business, and now I have a successful bakery. I mean, these are amazing stories. That, that, that's what inspires me. It seems like you're having a good time. Well, it's, it's a fantastic thing to be able to create a, a company that we expect will be a sustainable, viable, you know, profitable enterprise, and at the same time have such an enormous social impact. It's a, it keeps all of us here um, really going. And in our last couple of minutes, where do you see online education going? I think it's going to be huge. Um, And I think what it does is it changes the paradigm that education is no longer something you do, you know, uh, you know, K through 12, followed by four years of college, that it's not a, you know, one and done operation, that education is a lifelong pursuit. And that you know, in your 20s and 30s and even 40s, as you're still moving up the ladder career-wise, you're taking courses all the time, either in your workplace or on your own. On your mobile phone, by the way, we didn't talk about that, but this is accessible anywhere. Our mobile app is, you can do just anything you can do on the web, you can do on mobile. 
So I see that I see that people, um, uh, you know, doing career-related activities in the early stages of their careers, and then you know, folks that are well along, um, uh, like you, will want to you know take an astrophysics course just for the heck of it because you want would like you're curious and would love to learn about you know what's going on. Um, so I think it you know serves people at every stage of life with every kind of need and. To me, as a you know person who spent 43 years at Yale University uh, as a student, teacher, and president, the idea that universities can now contribute to people, you know, have a have a lifelong relationship with learners and not just a four-year relationship, I think it's immensely um, powerful. And I think universities are going to gradually learn that they have a whole new, very important social function. With profound implications economically and for societies for societies here and certainly in other countries as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, fantastic. <laughs> you have been watching episode number 224 of CXO Talk, and we have been speaking with Rick Levin, who is the CEO of Coursera. And previously, he was the longest tenured uh, president of Yale University in its history. Rick Levin, thank you so much for being with us and taking time today. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Everybody, come back next week. We have more shows and check out cxotalk.com slash episodes and subscribe on YouTube. Thanks so much. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.